You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. All right. Oh, God. (laughs) This is how you start a podcast, isn't it? Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenged while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. My name's Maddie, and uh, this is the Voluntary Vixens podcast. I'm here, burning sage, drinking my kombucha, joined by my lovely friend down south and co-host, Jesse. Jesse, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. How are you? Good. I'm doing all right. A little bit better of a day than I expected to have, weather-wise, so I'm yep. a bit like Eeyore when it looks like Eeyore-type weather out, so very happy to see some sunshine. Speaking of things that really shouldn't matter, some things we wanted to touch on today for our second episode, things we were sort of watching pop up in the media uh, and seeing how there's almost like two worlds that exist. There's reality. And then there's this pseudo-reality where people might tend to find themselves. It might be spending too much time on the internet, where it doesn't seem to be real life. It seems to be more this, like, clown world, where everybody's a victim, everybody's upset about it, everybody. And then there's reality, where you go out in the street and generally get along with almost anybody, unless you're actually a piece of human garbage. Anyway, we're talking about um, ideas of oppression, whether they're sort of real and actual or whether they're self-imposed or self-created. Jesse's going to take it from here, because this is a little bit outside my realm of expertise, but I think uh, you provide some good insight. Recently, um, if you work in the healthcare field, you've probably heard about Maureen Walsh. Um, She's a senator from Washington State. She was caught making some statements about nurses playing cards. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. And if you know anything about nurses, the last thing you ever want to do is call a nurse lazy. So everybody lost their minds. And they even, I on Facebook, they created a whole secret group that I ended up getting pulled into. And it was just talking, you know, just everybody complaining about this woman. So. Wait, can I ask what the name of this secret group is? Or is it not going to be a it's secret? Some, uh, it's called Nurses Play Cards is what it's called. <laughs> Um, And it's actually kind of funny. There's a lot of memes where, you know, nurses are, there's a bunch of like hot male nurses playing cards or something like that. You know, it's just like, it just turned into, it just, I don't know. Some of it's entertaining and then some of it's actually nurses asking real questions about the profession. And then 90% of it is just complaining about this woman. So without further ado, I will discuss this with you guys. So she, Maureen Walsh, she experienced a huge backlash for saying that nurses play cards for, quote, a considerable amount of the day. But did she really mean that or was that blown out of perspective? So what I did is I did a little bit of research to find out what she was talking about. I actually listened to her speech. It's a novel idea. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> the trouble really started when she was, she was at the whole, this whole recording was about her, she was having a speech at about a bill that was being put into place in the state of Washington that would basically make it mandatory for nurses to have breaks that were uninterrupted, which sounds great on its face. 
And it would sound like you trying to argue against that would make you a bigot and a horrible person. Why would you try to take away nursing breaks? Because a lot of times we don't get a break when we work a 12-hour shift. Mm -hmm. I did a little bit more research about what she was arguing about. And she mentioned critical access hospitals. So I started looking that up. Critical access hospital, for most of you who probably don't know, are rural area hospitals. Um, we actually had one here in East Tennessee up in Jellico that got shut down a couple years ago. Those hospitals are usually pretty small. They're about 25 beds or less, maybe a little bit more some in some places. But a lot of times the purpose of these hospitals is not really to be a fully functioning hospital. It's to, if you have an emergency, you come there, and if you need further treatment, they will transport you down to Knoxville a lot of times or, you know, wherever you live in a rural area your major city that's going to be close to you. So that's usually what they do. And she's actually from an area where she's in a rural area of Washington, and she's talking about the critical access hospital in her area of Washington. So that's why she was bringing that up. So I started doing research on critical access hospitals and what they're actually doing, because one of the things that she said that I kind of resonated with me is that if these hospitals were forced to comply with this bill, they may not be able to survive. So what she was talking about and what I started looking at is these critical access hospitals, a lot of times they don't get reimbursements or compensations like other hospitals do because a lot of the patients don't have insurance. And a lot of times these patients are very poor. So not only do they not have insurance, but they don't have any way of paying their bills. On top of that, these hospitals are falling apart and they need repairs. There are a lot of times they're older buildings and to keep them up to code and everything like that, they need, they really require, or they need a lot of help from the state. But a lot of times the state is going to give more money to their bigger hospitals that have more patients. So they just kind of get forgotten. So that's what she was just trying to say. So the bottom line of the whole thing, when I looked at the whole scope of the story is that really she was just trying to save these people's jobs. Because whenever you, and you're thinking, well, how can mandating a break, how can that cause somebody to lose their job? Well, whenever a bill or a government mandates anything, that also requires that a hospital has to make changes to how they do things, which can uh, mean that what they're probably going to do is they're probably going to cut people's hours. They may have to make some changes with just how they structure things and that will end up costing them money. That means that they're probably going to have to make cuts to people's jobs, cut people's hours. Another problem that a lot of these hospitals already have is that they don't have a full-time physician. So sometimes they'll just have physicians that come and work a few days there. They usually work in the bigger cities, so they might come out once or twice a week out there, but they don't have a full doctor on staff. So in order to keep that, that in itself is, you know, having a physician full time on staff is expensive too. I'm just thinking that's what she was trying to do. Uh, Maybe she didn't word it right. And maybe she used some poor words there, but I don't think that she was simply just calling nurses lazy or any healthcare professional lazy. I just didn't get that. I do think that the reason why this became such a big story is because she's a Republican senator. And I, maybe that's just me being biased. I don't know. But I just have a feeling that if it was a Democrat fighting for these people, it would the narrative would be completely different. You can take with that what you will. But 
I think that this is something that will probably just blow over over time. It's not that big of a deal. I just kind of wish that nurses weren't so sensitive about things. I think that's another, that's probably another podcast for another show is about how nurses get so worked up about everything. But, and maybe we should to some extent because we have a very important job. I mean, a lot of us work long hours and our job, if we don't do it right, could lead to somebody dying. So we are high strung people by nature. You have to be to do the job. This is what I would call a nothing burger. It's not a big deal. We just need to move on. It's not, you're not oppressed (laughs) by her words. Sorry. (laughs) Scale of oppressed to not oppressed. You're on the not oppressed scale. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, nurses. I can't take your side on this one. I guess the next thing that we were going to talk about was something that was near and dear to Maddie's heart. She cares a lot about vegans and men. So. (laughs) And how they actually shouldn't be one and the same. (laughs) Yes. Ever. But, you know, again, I'm not a vegan. I'm not a man. Um, I can't really speak to any of that, but. And I wouldn't say near and dear to my heart, but I do love a good burger. I've had at least one this week. So I would never be going to this cafe anyway. But this cafe in Australia, I was reading about that. I think Michael Malice honestly tweeted something about it, like favorite best troll ever. And so it was just something I thought that was funny and kind of fit in our theme of what's actual oppression versus what's fake oppression. And so this is, I'll let you kind of figure out which category I'll put this in. I guess what the idea of this restaurant was that they, one, would give priority seating to females. Okay, so these women, or these humans that were born with a certain genitalia, I don't know where they draw the line on, like, what people identify as. Like, that count, that sounds like it's going to get very sticky very quickly. Besides that, they also charge men an 18% premium to reflect the gender pay gap. Okay, so, like, don't even get me started on the gender pay gap. <laughs> They have to do like, wait, they're paying that percentage to just sit and think about it? Like, what does that mean? Uh, so I <laughs> sit and think about it. Like, <laughs> that's what I'm going to sit of. here and think about, think about uh, why you supposedly make more money than we do. Um, so no, like what it seems like they would uh, charge an additional 18% on top of a male bill. It's like, well, what if the male is treating the female? Like, does he get a discount? Does it drop down to 8-9% because it's only half male party i don't know it sounds more like virtue signaling than actually like a well thought out economic plan and the reason i say that is because guess what it uh you know is about two years in and it's closing so um shocker there oh my god but uh so it kind of it goes right along with the same thing so this is obviously a private entity a private business they chose to do this themselves but it, I think, proves a really good point and especially still fits in with the idea of what happens when something might be enforced that economically just is not sound. People want to disregard the economics because feelings are more important than facts and, like, the way the world actually works. I don't know. I don't know how that works. Obviously, if you were a man and you happen to be a vegan and at one point really enjoyed attending this restaurant, you wanted to go get your black bean burger and or sweet potato fries. I mean, that probably, you know, once in a blue moon might be tasty. So all of a sudden, just because you're a man and maybe you're an ally, you know, maybe you're best friends with these people. But because you're a man, you're going to be forced to pay this 
tax because you have a uh, an appendage <laughs> to your body that, you know, doesn't look like something that the females might have. But again, you know, who draws the line? What are we identifying as today? Are we are we going to limit it to genitalia? I, I, I just wish we had one standard set of rules, but it seems to just be whatever's more optimal at the time. But anyway, so, like, if that guy's going to have to pay an extra 18%, vegan food's already pretty expensive. I don't know if anybody's noticed, but not the cheapest restaurants to go to. McDonald's? Is McDonald's vegan? No. You can get french fries, and those are pretty cheap. But <laughs> the reason they're so cheap is because they can mass-produce all that. So if he asks to go get his expensive vegan burger and then gets an 18% tax on top of that, I think he's going to go find a new place and or maybe ditch that diet. Hopefully. Like, I've had it with these people. <laughs> I've had it with these people. Here I am trying to be friends with everybody, try to be nice to animals, try to not eat animal byproducts. And, you know, just because I have a penis, I'm getting charged 18% more than the female that, you know, might be. I don't want to disparage her, this ideal, or this ideal female. But, um, so I just think the imposition of that and then at closing, see, like, these hospitals, if they were to be mandated by the state to impose these rules or these things that would definitely disrupt an already under-budgeted business, because it has to be seen as a business, it these things are going to close down. And so like this happens in the real private world all the time when things don't make sense economically. And then, but so I don't know why people like to think that things might be different just because it's the public sector, but I guess, you know, people don't want to make that connection. Where's that money come from? It's actually taken from us taxpayers um, by threat of violence and actually actual force. Yeah. Um, Not voluntary. (laughs) Not very voluntary. But anyway, that was another... uh... It's a perfect example of how that model just is not going to work in general. Like, whenever you choose a group of people that you choose as your villain and you discriminate against them, they're not going to stay and they're not going to bring money into your system. I mean, that's just the truth. They're not going to stick around and get lambasted for having a ding-dong. Exactly. I was going to talk about another, another article. And of course, you know, we talked about how we wanted to find some silly articles and we wanted to find some uh, serious articles. So um, when I looked, when I was thinking of silly, I looked up Huffington Post. So my silly article is called, is uh, about Amy Poehler. And if you guys know who Amy Poehler is, um, then you'll know who I'm talking about. She was one of the comedians on uh, SNL. She's Tina Fey's BFF. Um, She's went through kind of a messy divorce. Well, I guess I wouldn't say it messy, but she went through a divorce with, uh, I can't remember her husband's, her ex-husband's name, but I loved him because I love that show that he was on, which I can't. Parks and Rec? No, before that. It's the one with, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of the show now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Everybody who's listening to this, you will look it up and you'll find out what I'm talking about. Chances are, if you're listening, you know who Amy Poehler is. Yes, that's the bottom line. That's all I want you to know. So the name of the article is called Amy Poehler Wants to Know When Women Will Get to Be as Mediocre as Men. And then there's a subtitle that says, Do we have to always be patient, special, nurturing, and adaptable? That's 
just ridiculous. But anyways, some more quotes that she says. Women are constantly criticized for being too emotional. Can we be allowed to be as messy and as all over the place, as inconsistent and mediocre as men? She asked the reporter. And then she goes on to complain that she is sick of women having to explain the bad behavior of men like fellow comedian Louis C.K. <sighs> Guys, I'm probably going to get skewered for this, but he never actually raped anybody. He never put his hands on anybody. Yes, what he did was disgusting, and I probably would have been disgusted totally as weird. well. Yeah, but I don't know if he deserves all of the, the abuse that he's been getting. And these are people that used to be his friends. Like, that's how sad it is. Apparently, women seem to be the ones that have to be, have all the answers, whether or not we want to be the ones with the answers, is what she says. So this article just kind of goes on and on about how she feels like women just have to answer all these questions about people like Louis C.K. and maybe other men who misbehave. Well, who's, who's expecting women to answer? The, I mean, who? Who's are other men asking women to answer these questions? I don't get it. So I don't know what she's talking about. I don't really about. know. This is, to me, this is just another example of a privileged person who is in Hollywood who makes millions of dollars. They don't know what it's like to live a real life anymore. They've completely forgotten, I mean, what the day-to-day -day life is. And, you know, I just can't even, I don't even know what to say about that. Because it's just how, I don't even relate to her in any way whatsoever. So to me, this is kind of like reminiscent of just the stuff that we see and we hear all the time in the media. I mean, this is on Huffington Post, okay? Huffington Post used to be known for actual news. I don't know. Now it's all, it seems like we're asking Hollywood to answer questions for us that we never asked. <laughs> we definitely didn't ask and definitely don't care about what their answers are. No, no, not at all. But also, I'll say, Amy, it's up to you. You can do whatever you want. If you think you want to be mediocre, that's on you. It kind of reminds me of a Louis C.K. joke, actually. There's a Louis C.K. joke. I don't remember which special it was, but what he said in the, in the joke was, you know, how do I explain to my kids about gay, something about gay couples? And he was like, I don't know. It's your kids. And that's kind of what I think about Hollywood It's like. You're asking all these questions like, who? I don't care. It's you. It's your life. You're the one that's worried about it, not me. I'm worrying about paying my bills. I'm worrying about taking my kids to school. So again, you know, on the scale of real oppression versus fake oppression, I think that gets a very resounding fake oppression. But if we want to talk about some actual oppression, um, something that popped up this, this week for me, I saw that there have been two women's rights defenders in Iran, and three, a third activist, detained. So two were detained in the past week, and a third who has been detained, so like, in prison uh, since October of 2018. Jesse, like, you know, want to um, take a wild guess as to why these Iranian women might be in prison? Because it's Iran. Throw a cat and you might pick something <laughs> that, uh, or hit something that will land you in prison. Yeah. Considering that women don't really have, I don't even know if they are considered full human beings in Iran, so. Well, it really just doesn't seem like it, or at least they definitely don't have the same kind of rights um, a man might have. But so, these women in particular have been detained for peacefully protesting against forced bailing. 
So being forced to cover their heads. Forced to wear the hijab. Mm-hmm. Here they are, like, peacefully protesting their right to not have to wear something stuffy and that they don't want to wear. They don't want to wear something. It's a piece of cloth. Which is, you know, in America, women can pretty much wear whatever we want. In and fact, or lack thereof. as little or as much as we want. Exactly. Yeah. And so while personal choices should dictate what you do and don't wear, the fact that these women, especially the one that's been detained in prison since October, okay, we're in um, April, almost May now. She's been in prison for months, about half a year almost, for her tyrannical government, theocratic dictatorship, telling them that they have to wear headscarves and these women being opposed to it, you know. it's one quote I saw that really kind of like hit home to me was um, her dream is that, you know, she and her friends are going to be able to walk peacefully without having to be actually protesting it, but peacefully and undisturbed by law enforcement without a headscarf. Hear that, pussy hats? Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't think they're allowed to wear pussy hats over there. I really doubt it. I, I would almost guarantee they probably can't. No. And that, I mean, that just kind of goes with, that just flies in the face of everything that these people, these women protest at the pussy hat brigades is that, you know, they, they talk about all the things that they aren't allowed to do, but they can wear whatever they want. They have movie stars cussing and complaining about men and even threatening to destroy the White House and nothing happens to them. But women in Iran simply just don't want to wear a headscarf and they, they get put in jail. Yeah, no, it's like, that compared to the things people want to complain about here, I just, I don't even have patience for it. I don't either. And then, you know, it's like <laughs> a lot of these uh, protesters, like, good, go protest, whatever. I'm probably going to be at work that day. You know, I've got things to do, like run a company or two, you know, of my own free will. But a lot of people when asked, a lot of these female protesters when asked here, like, what are, what in particular, what rights are being withheld from you? Like, what is actually at stake for you or the minorities that you claim to represent that you think you're just, like, such a good person because you're out there fighting for the little guy or the little girl, I should say. They honestly, just video after video and real-life conversation, I know what an empty, like, an empty idea is. And it seems like there's just not really anything, any actual concrete example of um, a right that's been taken away from them or something that's being withheld from them that they can identify and or, and or identify and stand behind put things in a crazy world perspective i thought it was really interesting that article that you shared with me earlier trying to figure out you know trying to figure out where things come out in the uh pseudo oppression versus actual oppression around the world sort of thing let's see what was the number one most dangerous uh country for women Oh, so this is the article I, I kind of sent Maddie an article earlier this week. It's from an, a website called Trust.org, and they did a poll. It, it's during it's through the Thomson, Tom, yeah, no, Thomson Reuters Foundation. So they did the most of the research. I thought this looked like a pretty good article at first. You know, the first uh, country they talked about being just dangerous towards women was India, which I completely understand that because I've been there. I've literally walked down the streets of India. And I've been harassed by men. When were you, when were you there, Jesse? Uh, last time I was there was in 2007. The first time I went was in 1998. Oh, wow. In 2007, I went with my mother. And I remember I was wearing a shirt that here, you know, no one would even think about. But I'm 
blessed, some would say, with large breasts. And I had a little bit of cleavage. And but I'm, you know, I didn't think that that was really noticeable because, I mean, I'm used to being in America where that doesn't get very much attention. I was literally being, men were literally body slamming against me when I was walking down the street. I'm not kidding. Just walking down the, down the side of the, like on the sidewalk, just minding my own business. We were trying to find a restaurant to go to. We had, it was our first day in India and men would just, they would literally walk right into me and they would, they would like hit me with their shoulder. Like they were playing football with me or something. It was crazy. It was assault. Like in a violent manner or like in a weird way to touch you manner? At first it wasn't that bad, but then it was like three or four guys in a row. And then finally the last one really pushed me. He pushed me into um, a friend of mine that was with me. And she was like, Jesse, I think it's because of your shirt. And she's like, I know that to me, it doesn't look bad, but they're not used to seeing this. And plus you're just, we're all white. We're all a bunch of white women on the sidewalk walking together. We're already like... Stick out like sore thumbs. <laughs> yeah. And see, this was in Mumbai, which is also known as Bombay, which is a, well, I mean, it's like a pretty uh, big city. They see a lot of different types of people all the time. It's not like they're not ever seen white people before. Pretty metropolitan, right? Yeah. So even with that being such a big metropolitan area and them have used to seeing so many different types of people... They still are not used to seeing a woman's cleavage. And that's something that is very offensive to men. They feel like it's okay okay to do that kind of stuff to women there. And actually, when I was reading books about going to India the first time, I was, I read about how men, men will try to grab you. They'll try to squeeze your bum. They'll try to grab your boobs. They'll, some will even try to kiss you. You have to just be on the, on the alert because just being nice to them over there could be seen as flirting. So you have to, eye contact and all that stuff has to be very, you have to watch that carefully. So yes, India being number one makes complete sense to me. Number two is Afghanistan. Well, it's a war War zone. zone. And has been for how many years now? Like almost two decades? Yeah. Certainly long enough. Time to come home. Time to come home. It's a dangerous country on its own, regardless of our, our occupation of it. But it makes sense that considering we are over there and the the war has been ongoing for, like I said, almost two decades and then conflicts before that. It's a warring tribesmen for the past centuries. It's right. very old, very old conflicts. Yep. So number three is Syria, which that should not be a surprise to any of us here today. Again, war zone. Let's go yep. home. Number four is Somalia. <laughs> Again, places that... Uh, we have military occupations and we shouldn't be there. Exactly. Five, Saudi Arabia. I almost can't believe Saudi Arabia is only number five. Do you think that has anything to do with us trying to be a little bit nicer to Saudi Arabia than we probably should? Yeah, I think so. There's a really good book that I read back in 2000, I think, or 2001 called The Princess or Princess. It's written, it's actually an autobiographical book about a Saudi Arabian princess who escaped from Saudi Arabia and her experiences growing up. So if you really want to get an idea what it was like, even for just the women who live, who were in the Saudi royal family, how they were treated, then yeah. And they're royalty and they're still treated like oh, yeah. garbage. They're property. That's what they are. Property. They're, for property. They're, they're, they're bought and traded for more money and more power. 
they're there to make more heirs for the Saudi royal government. So the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we know that that is that has been I'm surprised that's only number seven, actually, because that has also been a war zone. There's been a civil war going on in the Congo Mm -hmm. for a long time. And that's been one of the main things that they use to fight each other is rape. So Yemen, another war zone. How is Yemen only number eight when it's like, what is it, almost a half a million people probably are uh, starving to death? And a lot of these questions I'm going to, you're going to ask some more questions as we keep, as we keep going. <laughs> Nine. <laughs> and we don't have the answers for yeah. them. Uh, Sorry, guys. Scott, Hor- Scott Horton does, but. Um, Nigeria is number nine. Yeah. And let me just, just guess what number 10 is. Like if you were, if you didn't read this article before I gave it to you, what would you guess number 10 to be? I mean, maybe like Zimbabwe or um, another country in Africa or the Middle East or any, you know, pick a country we're occupying. I know women are thought, not thought of very highly in most parts of the world. And so thus it creates a very dangerous environment for them. But I mean, I would have said like Qatar. I would have said like uh, South Africa. (laughs) I mean... I'm just thinking there's a lot that uh, would probably be number 10, but number 10 is the USA. The United States of America is the 10th most dangerous country in the world for women. Yep. Uh, <laughs> can I call bullshit on that? <laughs> yes, you can. I will give you permission. <laughs> oh my goodness. So I don't know, guys. I don't know how, how much I would really put a lot of stock in that article after reading that because, but the point is that I was just trying to what I was doing my research on that was just to kind of point out like this is what we need to remember as women in the United States is we have it pretty good and yeah there are some very good there are some men that out there that are rapists and that are abusers but that's not the majority of the country and those types of people are considered outcasts in our society okay so, like, immediately, um, as soon as something like that gets reported, police have to follow up and they have to do something about that. In some of these countries, like India, for example, you report to the police that you've been raped. The police will give your name to um, traffickers who will use you as prostitutes. So, and, the, and if you're lucky, they'll just laugh at you and tell you to go home and just... <laughs> Shake it off. So instead of actually like procure procure you to be a prostitute. Yeah, that, that's your that's a good day in India. So hmm. I mean, I'm sure there are some areas of India where they're trying to be more progressive and they're trying to to make some changes. I feel like India is kind of two different countries right now. There's the progressive side that's really trying. And when I mean progressive, I don't mean like our country's progressive. I mean like they're actually trying to make progress. They're trying to move in a direction where human rights are going to be part of that. And then there's a number one. Yeah. And then there's the old school India that wants to just stay in the the back where men are still the powerful ones and and call the shots and in a caste system. Yeah. And they and they still there and the caste system is alive and well still in that country. So even though they tell you that it's been outlawed, they will make a lot of decisions based on your caste. If you want a job. If you want to go to university, if you want to get married, all of that depends on your caste. So 
bottom, I'm just saying we need to just be lucky and we need to remember how lucky we are. If we don't know that about ourselves, if we don't even re- acknowledge the things that we have, we have no appreciation for other people's su- suffering. If you sit there and you think that you're suffering because your ex-boyfriend cheated on you or your boss is a male who he just gives all the, all your male coworkers raises when you could easily just go find another job Get or, may, or maybe even go ask for a raise, job. ask for a raise. Yeah. But the Try thing, that. yeah, I th- but the thing is you can't really say that you care about women when you don't even remotely try to do something for these women in these other countries. I don't like hearing that. Madonna, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to, uh, so, uh, what's her name? I can't remember. But... I don't know. You pick one. Lena Dunham? <laughs> Any of them. Just... Where do you want me to go? Amy Poehler. Amy Poehler. <clears throat> Any author. Tina Fey. All of journalist. you who, yeah, all of you who talk about how much you care about women, you get, put your pussy hats on and you go march in January every year. Go do something in India, please. Because you know what? As much as I, I talk down on India, I love that country. I love Indian people. I think their culture is amazing. Their food is the, is the best. The food is the best. I actually what? like, I like Arab culture too. And I like Arab food. So go, please. If you want to make a difference, do something there. But quit complaining about Louis C.K. too, please. <laughs> please, for the love of God, stop complaining about Louis C.K. He's funny. I'm ready for more Louis jokes. I'm sorry. Just make sure you kind of keep things in perspective. And I have to do that on a very individual, small scale myself. Like, I have an app that tells me to be, like, reminds me to be grateful for tiny things Mm -hmm. throughout my day. And honestly, like, I was in a pretty dark place for a little bit. And I'm forcing myself to have something like that. And it's like, you know, I think the bigger picture things that I should put in every day is, like, I don't have to wear a headscarf. And or like, even if I, I don't have to, like if I wanted to, and um, if I was a practicing Muslim and I decided to wear one, it was, it's my choice. I'm mm-hmm. able to practice my religion freely, but to not be able to choose what I want to or not to wear. I mean, like we can get off on another tangent of like public indecency a lot yeah. later, but uh, again, like really who cares, honestly, if you're not um, harming another person or, um, you know, stealing their property or destroying anybody's property, but. Yay, nudist colonies. <laughs> Just kidding. I wouldn't attend. Uh, every year, for the past few years, I've always posted, like, something on Facebook or Instagram about the Armenian genocide around this time of year because April 24th is the anniversary. This will be the 102nd, I believe. It, it's been 102 years since the Armenian genocide. And, and uh, I just want to say something about, uh-huh. like, the Armenian genocide. It's like, I didn't learn about that until post-college and me being a podcast freak I had to learn about this kind of thing myself and I think if you want you might like I want to touch on how it's something that seems to be brushed under the rug every chance uh possible yeah. um but it's actually an, an atrocious event in human history and a recent very modern human history like 100 years ago like you said um a little bit over 100 years and uh, it's something that most people don't know about Yep, just think World War One because this is when it was happening, was during that time, which is probably why it got swept under the rug, because all of, you, all of Western Europe and America was involved in this big world war. 
So they didn't know about this. They weren't privy to all this information. And back then it took a long time for information to get out. And the people who were, who were reporting on it were German missionaries over there. They were the majority of the people that were taking pictures and sending in articles about it. The Armenian genocide happened in 1915. That was when they decided it had been for a while. The Turks, um, this was a new Turkish government that was starting up. Uh, it was still the Ottoman Empire, but there was a group called the Young Turks. Just remember that, guys. There was a group called the Young Turks that were really, they were really young and they were on fire for the Turkish country and they wanted to extend the empire out even further and they wanted it to be all Turkish people. And um, the people that were in the way were the Armenians. They were kind of like the Jews are in Europe to the Turks because they were very family oriented. They were kind of to themselves. They were Christians instead of Muslims. Um, they also did a lot of money, money lending. They were, very, they were the intellectuals. They would um, be the doctors, the lawyers, that kind of thing. Even though they were the minority, they held a, like higher paying jobs and they kind of kept it in the family too. Like they made sure their kids went to school and learned and that kind of thing. So Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like another yes. um, very successful <laughs> yeah. minority, you know, a couple of years and a big war later. Yeah. They started out taking all the male intellectuals, the doctors, the lawyers, the leaders of the Armenian groups, and they took them places, they tortured them, they killed them. And then what happened after that is they would, what was called the death march, is they would take these people out into the desert and make them march in the desert. A lot of times just in circles. They didn't know where they were going didn't have enough food. A lot of times they would be sick with dysentery. They would die from that kind of stuff. But the hallmark, I think, of the Armenian genocide, I think that a lot of people, if they know anything about the, the Armenian genocide, is just the amount of rape that happened. And not just to women, to young girls, to children. The young is eight years old. And I read an article where this woman was talking about she inter she was taking in all these young kids, these women, and trying to feed them and take care of them. This was in Syria. And she said all of them but one had been raped. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how during war rape is such and is used as a weapon. It's used to not only humiliate the women and treat and to subjugate them, but it also humi humiliates the men when they have to. And a lot of times they have they would have to watch this before they were killed. They, they they knew if they ran away and didn't protect their wives and children that they would all be raped or killed or both. There's actually a photograph that if you want to be, if you really want to, I wouldn't suggest it, but there's a photograph of young girls who were crucified on a cross just after being raped. So it just tells you the, just the amount of just cruelty that human beings can have. And I would, I, she, Maddie actually gave, sent me this podcast and I'm going to just plug it because I think it was, it does a pretty good job of letting you know just how much, just how much was going on at that time. It was by Sam Tripoli. He has a show called Tinfoil Hat and um, it's episode 186. So I'm going to definitely plug that. They also talked about a movie that, this is another thing. There's not a whole lot of movies that are allowed to be made about the Armenian genocide. Mm -hmm. um, they quiet. talked about them. Yeah. They talked about a movie called The Promise. I'm going to mention a movie that I saw 
back when I was probably in my early 20s called Ararat. It's it's A-R-A-R-A-T. It's named after the mountain Ararat, which is in Armenia. It was, I think it's directed by Adam Egoyan, who you probably don't know. A lot of people in America don't know who he is. In Canada, he's pretty well known. He's an Armenian. His wife is, um, her name is Arsene Kanjian, and they both are in it. It's about the making of a movie about the Armenian genocide, which I thought was smart. That's how he, that's how he got the movie made. But it's not oh, a well-known that's how movie. He, that's how he had to hide the fact that he yeah. was making a movie about the Armenian genocide. And it's a, literally about the struggle of trying to get this movie made because everybody's against it and they don't think it's important. Last little bit about that, too, is our our government has yet to really publicly call it a genocide. The recent news is that France, actually, which I would not have guessed that France would have done this, but the president, Macron, he publicly announced that it was a genocide during the... I guess on April 24th and the president of Turkey was pissed and threatened to like take away all their funding and their trade deals and everything. But then a few days later, I think they came back and did Mm. that and agreed to that. So maybe this will be a lesson to Trump to go ahead and just call it what it is and not be afraid of what the retaliation you're going to get from Turkey because they need us more than we need them anyways. Absolutely. I don't think we should ever forget that. I don't know why we have to kowtow to any of these people, any yeah. of these countries that, one, have a history of doing atrocious things and or are still doing atrocious things. Israel included. Mm-hmm. Um, just like we are the superpower. And while I don't think we should be the world's policemen, we still have the biggest you know what out there. Um, military force. <laughs> Wink. Um. And, it's just and just like, stand on the side of truth. Just stand, stand on the, the side, side of truth. truth. Everybody wants to talk about being on the right side of history. This is a perfect this example. This is it. This is and the perfect this is time. A very worthwhile. Very worthwhile. Yes. One. And next year, um, I'm going to try my best to get out and march in Washington as a rem- for the remembrance of the Armenian genocide. Because even though I don't have it, I'm not Armenian. I don't know anybody that's Armenian personally, other than, I mean, I don't know Kim Kardashian personally, but that's the only one that's famous that. Other than Adam Egoyan. Um, but I, feel I had an like Uber driver. It's... I had an Uber driver when I was out in LA <laughs> and he was Armenian. We had a nice conversation and we talked about when his family had to escape. And yeah. um, we just talked just... about how it's tragic that nobody knows about it. Yes. And, and um, I just it, want to be part of that. Yeah. And I want to be not talked about. Maybe me and Maddie will, will march because she lives up around that area. So maybe I we do. can yeah, go so march. Can be posted. Yeah. Because I think it's important. And I, everybody who's listening to this, which is maybe like two people, (laughs) mom and dad, will you please support that cause? Thank you. Anyways, that's probably a good place to end it. We, I just started an email for us. It's called voluntaryvixens at gmail.com. So if you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email us there. When we get more social media presence, then I'll let you guys know about that in the future. So you can follow us and we can have uh, some fun there. All right, guys. Well, let's uh, sign out for this week. We'll talk again soon. In the meantime, everybody, not just you and I, let's keep it sane, keep it peaceful, but most importantly, keep it voluntary. Voluntary. Good night. Good night.